You're listening to audio from Grace Community Church in Anger, North Carolina. More information about Grace Community Church can be found at graceccnc.org. Being here this morning, thank you for choosing to worship with us. Whether you're here or online, we are grateful for your presence. As we now open the word and break bread in a different kind of way. Uh, If you were here last Sunday morning, thank you for coming. No, that's not what I meant to say. If you were here last Sunday morning, you will recall that we waded into the deep and troubled waters of Romans chapter 5, verses 12 to 21. A passage that a lot of scholars say is one of the most difficult in all scripture. But once it begins to make sense, so many other things in scripture open up. For us, I say that they were trouble waters because our text revealed how all humanity is represented by Adam in relation to God. Okay, there's my. I'll let you. Uh... Oh, little piece that uh, breaks the wind is so valuable, but uh, it I lose it all the time. I have reached that stage again, you know. Um, So all humanity is represented by Adam in relation to God. So we had Adam's family over here last week and Jesus' family over here. When Adam sinned, he brought eventual death upon himself and, and, and Eve, but also spiritual death that was extended to all of his family, all who would be born, which includes all of us, unless something was done about our sin. When, uh, I think, by the way, we're going to see Adam and Eve in heaven, because think about it. When, After he confronted them, they realized after sinning that they were naked, he confronted them uh, as they were, and then afterwards, what does it say that he did? He clothed them with skins of animals. A, a, a blood, an animal's blood was, was shed to cover them and to cover their shame. So I think uh, we're going to see Adam and Eve in heaven again. But the Romans, the waters in Romans chapter 5 may be trouble, but the waters of Romans 6 are blessed. And that's where we're going to be today. Romans 5, 19 to 21 tells us that although... Adam's one act of sin led to the fall of all humanity. So Adam took us all down with him. Jesus' death on the cross brought redemption for all who believe. How much greater was Jesus' one act of obedience than Adam's one act of disobedience that led to ever-increasing sin? Romans 5.20, where sin increased... Grace abounded all the more. Ever-increasing sin. Remember last week the analogy of Adam got the toothpaste out of the tube. Jesus puts it back in. It's a really poor analogy, but it's the best I got. But just think about this. Not only does he get some of that toothpaste back in, but he's doing it while there's more and more coming out all the time. That's one of the things that Romans 5 is showing how much greater Jesus' act was than Adam's act that brought us all down. So Romans 5.20, where sin increased, grace abounded all 
the more. Now, how did we get from Adam's family to Jesus' family? Romans 8 is going to tell us, and it's all connected, that we were taken out of Adam's family, adopted into the family of Jesus. And this means what exactly? Now that we're no longer in sinful Adam, but we're in perfect and righteous Jesus, does this mean that we will achieve perfection in the Christian life? Does it mean that now that we're in Adam, it's all right if we sin, we can live any way we want to? Well, the question of perfection is going to be answered over the next two to three weeks. It'll be, <laughs> we'll begin today. The answer is no, I can tell you up front, but we're going to see how that is not so, even though uh, the power that we have now is amazing in Christ. But what about the question uh, whether we should live, be able to live any way that we want to after we're saved? Uh, the answer is emphatically no. Today's text is Romans 6, 1 through 14. And the title of the message, which comes from the text, is Remember Your Baptism. Find it interesting that Baptists think, don't think about baptism very much after baptism. And I was ordained Baptist. I went to a Baptist seminary. We're non-denominational. Uh, but I... Most of my training was in the Baptist world, but we don't tend to think about baptism much after it's done. Now, it's very important for it to be done, but not afterwards. And a phrase like, remember your baptism, uh, is one that many evangelicals find suspicious. But hopefully, when it's understood fully, it will be a very useful term and a useful thought. Now, look, I, I confess when I first heard the term, remember your baptism, it conjured up thoughts of baptismal regeneration. Some of you are familiar with that term, others never heard of it. It's, it's the notion that either baptism alone saves or that you must be baptized after you believe in order to be saved. So faith is good, but if you're not baptized, you're not saved. In, in the first century, if nobody was asking the question, do you have to be baptized to be saved? If you had asked that question, someone, the person would have said, well, I, I guess no, but why would you not want to be baptized? You know what was sort of a beautiful thing about these two that were baptized today? They were disappointed that it kept getting pushed until the day worked out, everything worked out. We had to postpone it last week because we had to get this pool that uh, Anthem Church in Andrew so graciously loaned us. If you get the notes, if you see anybody from Anthem, tell them thank you very much. Uh, but, but we had to keep bumping it, and, and the girls were like, okay, okay, I guess so. Uh, they wanted to be baptized, and that ought to be the case for all of us who are saved. If you are a believer and you've never been baptized, please talk to me sooner rather than later. But to say that you have to be baptized in order to be saved cannot be what Paul is talking about in Romans 6 because he spent three chapters presenting faith in Jesus' sacrifice as the only means of salvation. Even so, baptism is far more important as a picture of the profound work that God has done in and through Jesus 
a far more profound picture than we evangelicals are often aware. What does it mean? Well, our text is going to answer that question at some level in Romans 6, 1 through 14. So we're going to go through Romans 6, 1 through 14, and then conclude with a few points of application. But before we get into the text, would you please bow your heads in prayer with me? Father, thank you so much for the beautiful picture of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ that we have seen this morning as America and Zola have both in obedience followed you in baptism. They have followed Jesus into the baptismal waters, not only with his example, but also as identifying to whole, all the world, I belong to Jesus. And we thank you that Jesus says to us when we're baptized, I belong to her, I belong to him. So open our hearts, may we understand this beautiful passage that can be difficult, but can be very simple and profound at the same time. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So Romans 6, in the context of the last two verses of Romans 5, where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. Once again, this means I'm no longer under condemnation in Adam, but I can't live any way that I want to. In fact, though, the critics of Paul were saying, oh, wait a minute, what you're saying is that if we just keep on sinning, then that illuminates God's grace all the more because where sin abounded, grace abounds more. So the more you sin, the more grace is shown, right? Well, Paul had a ready response for such a pernicious view. Romans 6, 1 to 2. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means, God forbid, it says in some of your texts. How can we who died to sin still live in it? What you learn about Romans over the course of your life is that it is a beautifully and outstandingly logical explanation of why the world is like it is. It's, the whole worldview is in Romans. Why is the world like it is? Why do people believe as they do? How does the Christian life work, and how are we to glorify God with our lives? But logic can be misused and can be employed against truth as well as for it. Paul had already anticipated this criticism. Oh, if you look to Jesus and his grace for salvation, instead of keeping the law as best you can, then you won't worry about the law. You won't worry about cheating on your taxes. You won't worry about cheating on your spouse, for that matter. Since once you believe, once saved, always saved, and no worries, mate, you're good with God, right? Paul considered this attack on the gospel to be particularly evil since it missed the whole point of the gospel and God's grace in our lives. It's not that you're impugning the character of those who believe. You're impugning the character of God by saying it's about law, not gospel. Keep sinning, Paul said, so that grace may abound. Horrific thought. A contradiction at the most basic level. A sinful life was your lot when you were in Adam. But 
your life in Jesus is completely different. May it never be, God forbid, by no means. Those last three expressions translate the Greek, meganoita. I know that. I remember that all these years because I took Greek in college and in seminary. In college, we would, when the professor would say, we're going to have a quiz today, we'd say, meganoita, may, may, may it never be. Our college professor really didn't have a good sense of humor. Let me just put it that way. He didn't even crack a smile. He said, get your paper out, you know, because that was back in the day where you did that. Our, my Greek professor in, in seminary <laughs> was a very funny man. I'll tell you about him sometime. Here is what is not funny. To live a life of sin while claiming to be a follower of Jesus. That's a contradiction of the highest order. Next week, we're going to talk about the difference of living according to the law or living according to the gospel. And no doubt, living according to the law is far more complex and nuanced than you might have thought. But do not make the mistake of using your crusade against legalism to justify a sinful lifestyle. And it's far easier to get there than you may think. In verses 1 and 2, it's not so much that Paul is saying it is impossible for a believer to sin, but he was saying it is a moral contradiction to do so. Verses 3 and 4. Do you not know, he'll say that again in Romans 6, we won't get to it, but he'll say it again. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ, Jesus, were baptized into his death? Romans 1 Corinthians 12, 13 talks about this process. The Holy Spirit baptizes us into the body of Christ at the moment we believe. We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. So I've already referenced 1 Corinthians 12, 13. Is the Lord talking here about spiritual baptism or water baptism? While the answer is the classic yes at some level, it's primarily talking about water baptism. In fact, in the New Testament, if you do not uh, see a reference to the Spirit or he will baptize you with the Spirit and the fire, as John the Baptist talked about Jesus, then you can know he's talking about water baptism but it is important to remember that while baptism pictures our union with Christ it does not bring salvation it does not ensure what it signifies is a more technical way of saying it only when our relationship with Jesus is affirmed by faith is our baptism meaningful now lest you say okay I was very young when I was baptized in fact so young, I didn't have any say in the matter at all. I'm not saying that your baptism was not meaningful, even if you were really young. But I am saying that without faith in Jesus, then baptism doesn't do anything for us. It's one of the great differences between Protestant theology and Catholic theology. It's just that 
Catholics think that with baptism, that ensures that you are saved, whether you have faith or not. But we believe that you must have faith. And Paul has talked about this all the way through Romans, and he's going to continue to talk about it. But baptism is an enormously powerful and important picture. So why the phrase, it's not found in, in Romans 6, but why the phrase that so many reformed thinking people use, remember your baptism? Because it is the picture, picture of your relationship and your identity with Jesus. You remember how last week the best theological explanation, although it can be a difficult one, of our relationship to Adam before we were saved is that Adam sinned, and so it was as if we were sinning with him. It's as if we were in the garden sinning with Adam and Eve when he sinned because he was the representative of the entire human race. In the same way, Jesus died as our representative. And when we repent and believe, it is, is as if we died, were buried, and raised with him. All this is pictured in baptism. And I'm going to talk about that again a, a little bit later. And I'm going to come back to the important, importance of remembering our baptism at the end. For now, let's look at verses 5 to 8. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might, not, uh, might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. A, a few key things to know from this, these verses in which Paul continues the baptism imagery. In verse 5, we are told, as believers, we are united with Christ in his death and his resurrection. Now, it's not a death that pays for sin. We weren't paying for our sins like Jesus paid for our sins. But it says if we died with him. And we weren't resurrected exactly like Jesus' resurrection. But in our union with Christ. The implication is that we are a different person after we trust Christ. A major change has taken place in our lives. Since we are no longer in Adam. But rather we are in Christ. Sin has no longer got a claim on us. Sin no longer has a claim on us because we have been crucified with Jesus. Now, there are two ways that the New Testament speaks of the Christian being crucified. One has legal implications. The other has moral implications. Since the truth of our identity in Christ in Romans 6 is inextricably linked to the past identity that we had with Adam in Romans 5, the first point that Paul is making is a legal one. Everyone over here is condemned. Everyone over here is not condemned. Sin and death and hell can no longer lay claim on me because my sin has been crucified and paid for 
in Christ. In fact, verse 7 could be read this way. The one who has died has been justified from sin or is freed from sin's penalty. So I no longer have to pay for my sin. But we need to be careful not to make the mistake of Paul's critics and say that this passage is only about our legal standing before the Lord. We're called to follow Paul's example in 1 Corinthians 15, 31, to die daily to our sins, to the passions of our flesh, so that we can live a resurrection life, free not only from the penalty of sin, but also from the power of sin. That's where the text is going in verses 9 to 14. Look at verses 9 to 11. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Jesus' death was once and for all. But we need to die to our sins every day. Jesus' single act of dying for our sins is so powerful that even though I am not yet free from the presence of sin in my life, I am no longer under the dominion of death. Pretty soon I'm going to start feeling like the guys playing on the Titanic, you know. I mean, I'm going to be, everybody's being blown away and I'm up here playing a tune as the ship is going down. So, I am not free from the presence of sin, but I do, I'm not under the dominion of death. <clears throat> and my contemplation of my change of position from Adam to Jesus now begins to make a difference in the way that I live. Deliberate contemplation of this truth is going to make a difference in our lives. I must consider myself dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. So how does knowledge alone make a difference? Look, look, let's just imagine, imagine you're a teenager, say in the 11th or 12th grade, one of your last two years of high school, and some of you don't have to imagine because that's who you are. Um, and you come home, you've been out, I can't say you've been to school because, you know, school's not meeting, but you've been out somewhere in the neighborhood doing something, <clears throat> And you come home, and there are some really official-type black SUVs out in front of your home. So you walk inside, and there are some really official-type people sitting there with your parents in the living room. And they say, your parents say, sit down, son, sit down, sweetheart. We've got something to tell you. You need to know something. And then they proceed to tell you that you're not really connected to the family that you've grown up with. You were, in fact, and are royalty of another country somewhere else in the world. And just one month into your young life, rebels took over the kingdom of your country and you were whisked away just before you were killed. But everything has been set to rights. And one year from today, you are going to be crowned queen or king of your rightful country. 
I think I might try to pitch that idea to Disney or Hallmark or something like that, Netflix. I'm sure never, there's never been a story on that before. But you think about what a difference that would make in your thinking. First of all, there'd be a lot of stuff, grief that you would have to process once you're convinced. But then knowing who you're, tr knowing what your true identity is, knowing who you are in reality begins to make a difference in the way that you live. You don't have time for Instagram, Twitter, or some of the other social media outlets. I'm way behind. I know that. I understand that. You don't have time for all of those outlets, though. You've got to be prepared to take the throne in what is now less than a year. Let's think about this for just a moment. You don't have to close your eyes, but I want you to imagine you were in Adam and you were waiting to stand before the righteous, holy God of the universe. And it's not a matter of, Adam, how could you possibly have done this? You know that you're guilty in him. He's your representative. You, you were waiting to stand before God to receive your just sentence. And then an angel enters the room or the field or wherever it is you have yourself in this scenario. And he says, hey, call your name. Come with me. You walk in now all of a sudden, you find yourself in a room or a field or wherever with family. And it's your family. Now you're no longer identified with Adam, but you belong to Jesus. And you can go anywhere that he goes. You know, it's like going to an event and they say, I'm sorry, we're sold out. And, and, and it's, well, I'm with him. Oh, okay, well, come right on in. So knowing this, would you now like to go home and watch stuff online that you know you shouldn't be watching? You want to go gossip and, and destroy someone's life? Would you love nothing more than just to continue the life that you used to live? If you really felt it, if you really understood what that condemnation means, and at some point in our lives, almost all of us sense that. Oh, I am undone before the Lord. That was an expression that used to be used. But there is not, I am in big trouble. But the instant you're saved, there's that joy and that beauty that fills your life. And if you grew up never remembering that time, you still understand the difference. Do not doubt that you are a believer just because you don't remember that experience. If your trust is in Jesus and Jesus alone, then you're right here. You've been baptized into the family, and I hope you've entered the baptismal waters to tell the world and to identify with Jesus even more closely. Verses 12 to 14. Let not sin, therefore, reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members or the parts of your body to sin as instruments for unrighteousness. But present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life. 
and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will no longer have dominion over you since you are not under the law but under grace. It feels the opposite, doesn't it? It feels like it would say, well, you're under grace now, so you better watch yourself. But when you're under the law, sin is not going to rule over you because you will rule over it. We can't rule over sin. It's part of who we are. But when you are under grace in the gospel, that changes everything. So it's not simply knowledge. You and I have responsibility. If you know anything, you know that the temptation to sin did not go away when you were given a new identity. I'm, I'm going to tell you, for about two, three, four months, the temptation to sin after I got saved when I was 18 took a break. I just I was so in love with the Lord that I wanted to do everything. But one day I just looked up and there it was. Temptation to sin, right again. So the temptation to sin doesn't go away when we're given a new identity. The desires that we have have changed significantly, but temptation still exists. There's an effort that is required on our part to overcome temptation, which leads to these last three just quick thoughts from our text. First, do not live as though you are dying, but as one who is already dead to sin. You know, if I think about something ahead of time, it's probably going to come out. I thought... I don't need to talk about Tim McGraw's country song, Live As Though You're Dying. I get so tickled. This guy had cancer. He knew he was going to die. So what did he do? Climbed the Rockies and rode a bull and did all kinds of stuff. I'm thinking, no, you were probably getting chemo. And, and what is it about live like you are dying that you think, I just got to do everything for myself? Don't live as though you're dying. Live as though you are already dead to sin. I don't know about you. One of the most exciting prospects of heaven for me is that I will be completely rid of the old me. Said it before, say it again. I'm no longer in Adam. I'm in Christ. But Adam hitched a ride and he's still in me. But when the day comes that I stand before Jesus, Adam is gone. The old man, the old self <clears throat> will be completely gone. I'll be so glad to be rid of the part of me that is tempted to sin, that is impatient and distracted and at times paralyzed by too much of this and too little of that. In Romans 6, 6, we're reminded that our old self was crucified with Christ and that its power to make us sin is removed. Now that's a slight variation on written, but that's exactly what Paul meant. It's, it's not that the presence of sin has been removed from my life, but its power to defeat me has been removed. We're going to see over the next two weeks that the struggle between sin and righteousness absolutely reigns in the hearts and minds and words and actions of believers. But it's like two people. It's like the old devil and angels sitting on the shoulder. It's not the way it is, but it gets at it. It's sort of towards that truth that there are two parts competing. But to understand our position in Christ and to regularly contemplate our identity in Him is a critical step 
in our sanctification or in our spiritual growth, as is our second point. Not only live as though we're already dead. Here's another one. Do not live as though you will be resurrected in the end, but live today with resurrection power. When Romans 6, 9 says that death no longer has any claim on Jesus after his first resurrection or after his resurrection, it's first telling us that Jesus was truly dead. It's not that he fainted and then, and then revived. No, he was all the way dead. And now that he is raised from the dead, he won't ever face death again like Lazarus had to do after he was raised from the dead. It, it should be the same for us regarding sin. It should be the same for us regarding sin. We were dead in Adam, incapable of overcoming sin. Now we're alive in Christ with resurrection power. And you're probably thinking, well, that's theoretical. That's the spiritual. No, it's, it's reality. It is truly the case that we have the power of Jesus' resurrection in our lives. Although Adam is still in us, Jesus is in us now. And we don't have to sin, although Romans 7 says we will. That does not change the reality of our position in Christ, though. Nor does it change the truth that we have Jesus' power to overcome sin, just as he resisted temptation in his life. If we overcome sin, though, it will be him doing it. Or will it? The last point is this. It is not up to you, but you must work at this new life. But it is not up to you. Not many years ago when somebody would say something provocative, they might add on, I, I'm not saying, I'm just saying. This sort of feels like one of those statements. It's not up to you. It is up to you. It's not up to you. Sanctification or the ongoing process by which God, through the Holy Spirit, is making us holy is a difficult doctrine to understand and articulate because while it involves our own disciplines uh, and decisions and activities, it's clearly a work of grace in our lives. There is God, God's part and our part, but we are not equal partners in this process. And that is good news. It is not up to us. The challenging word for us is that you must work at this new life in Christ. You can't just walk around expecting God to take over your body and that's good. You have decisions to make. The comforting word for you is that God is the one ultimately doing the work in you. Don't blame your failures, but trust on him, uh, on the Lord. Don't blame your failures. Well, God, I thought you were going to give me the power. No, it, it, it's you. But trust him to do through you what you're incapable of doing in your own strength. None of what is said in Romans 6 is intended to make us pretend that the old self no longer lives in us when we know perfectly well that the old self is alive and well in us. It will take a lifetime to understand how God is molding us more and more into the image of Jesus, which is this summer series that we're rounding the bend and on the home stretch from. We're being made more and more like Christ.
It begins with us being adopted out of Adam's family into Jesus' family. And baptism reminds us of this. So I want to close with a quote from John Stott on the importance of remembering our baptism. And hopefully that phrase will make more sense to you. It points to the magnificent work that God has done in us. Quote, Our union with Jesus Christ has severed us from the old life and committed us to the new. Our union with Christ has severed, it's cut it in, in, in two from the old life and has committed us to the new. You're never going back. If you belong to Jesus, you're not going back. Our baptism, Stott continues, stands between the two like a door between two rooms closing on one and opening into the other. We have died and we have risen. How can we possibly live again in what we have died to? Close quote. And that is indeed the question. How can we live again in what we have died to? So we've come full circle. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the number of people who braved the cold and now have braved the cold wind who have come out here to worship together, to watch this beautiful baptism, to sing with our hearts and praise to you and to hear your word. Father, um, that is a very small thing compared to what Jesus has done for us. We, we recognize that, but there's really no comparison with anything any of us could ever do. But we are called to take up our crosses and to follow you, to die to ourselves. And Lord, I pray that you would make this real in my life this week. Time and again, bring my heart and my mind back to Romans 6 and remind me that I belong to you. And to say, well, I, I might be tempted. Or I might be a little bit impatient, but I, I don't live like that anymore. I'm no longer in Adam. I'm in Christ. Help me, Holy Spirit. To obey God. Thank you for your word and its impact in our lives. Thank you for loving us the way that you do. And for this great news that those who repent of their sins and believe that Jesus died for them is the only hope for salvation. That all of those and all of us belong to you in Jesus' name. Just before the benediction, I just want to say it's Jason Purrier's last day with us as intern. We are so grateful for his service to us. I meant to say that earlier, but thank you, Jason, for all you have done. Thank you for listening to audio from Grace Community Church, located in North Carolina. Feel free to make copies of this audio content to share with others. But please do not charge for those copies 
or alter the content in any way without permission. For more information about Grace Community Church, go to graceccnc.org.